new United Nations report warns the impacts of climate change are increasing and inevitable. Experts say that we have until 2030 to avoid catastrophe. Temperatures in the Arctic have warmed about two or three times It will be very difficult and impossible for our children to control climate change. This is South of Two Degrees, and I am your host, Brian Barnes. It is so good to have you with us today on the only podcast dedicated to bringing unfiltered scientific research to the forefront of the climate conversation. We finish up an incredible series for you today. So my friends, once more, into the fray. It's really great to have you all back with us today as we wrap up our three-part mini-series, What Stands in Our Way, where we have been analyzing and breaking down the obstacles we face as a society as we look to rapidly and effectively address anthropogenic climate change. Over the last two weeks, we have looked at the economics of addressing it, as well as the social determinants that shape our mitigation efforts. Today, we're rounding that out with a look into the arguments of deniers and delayers so that we may more efficiently speak to their underlying concerns in order to bring them along with us in our fight to keep anthropogenic warming to less than, or south, of two degrees. Look, I know as a non-political show, we're going to be walking a fine line today, but know that we are not going to be going after Cinder X, Prime Minister Y, or President Z and what they say. Rather, today's show is a look at the construct of any climate denier or delayer's argument from a scientific perspective. Why do you ask? Well, we need others to be collaborators with us, and for that to happen, we need to be able to effectively identify and label their arguments, and that is the goal of today's show. Now, I know this show has listeners that either deny or advocate delaying, and as we go through today's show, I want you to look hard at your own arguments and see if they fit into any of these constructs. My guess is they will, and if so, I challenge you to really think about your position. As for the advocates out there... I want you to listen as well. Listen for the roadblocks so often you have tossed in front of you when you're speaking to truth. Get comfortable labeling it out loud, i.e., that's what about ism, and start to think about how such arguments can be dismantled in a non-malicious way. So with that, let's get on with it. Let's start today with climate denialism. If we analyze the taxonomy of climate denialism, you can divide it into three groups. A, trend skeptics, B, attribution skeptics, and C, impact skeptics. In a quick breakdown, trend skeptics are those that debate the trend, such as the amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Those that accept the trend yet debate if the source is anthropogenic are our attribution skeptics. And finally, those that may go so far as to accept the origins of the trend, but debate the impact of increased anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions are our impact skeptics. Despite the type of skepticism, they all employ the same five tactics. The five tactics, and I should note this goes beyond climate science to any conversation that deals with denial, are in rapid succession 1. Fake experts 2. Logical fallacies 3. Impossible expectations 4. Cherry picking and 5. Conspiracy theories Let's look at each briefly. So, fake experts, huh? Really? Well, actually, yeah, the basis for this comes from a singular avenue, that of scientific disinformation. This isn't a new construct, and yet the scale to with which it has been deployed in the climate debate is astounding. We have seen this in the tobacco industry, the debate on the role of CFCs, the sugar industry, etc. In fact, a fascinating paper on this was published 14th of January 2019 called Evidence-Based Strategies to Combat Scientific Misinformation. Because there are institutions that have obvious financial interests in avoiding 
avoiding change, like, say, the fossil fuel industry, and creating scientific uncertainty has been shown to be immensely effective, it can be very tempting to employ fake experts. The paper describes this quite well by stating, Quote, creating the appearance of scientific uncertainty about issues for which the solutions may threaten these interests is therefore critical to this intellectual infrastructure. The network is spearheaded by a handful of in-house and externally funded experts, often credentialed with a PhD, who discredit scientific consensus, misrepresent and draw selectively from scientific literature, and create the appearance of scientific legitimacy through their own conference presentations, questionable scientific research, white papers, and web articles, thereby raising the specter of doubt about established facts. End quote. With the advent of modern information technology, it has made things both better and worse. On the better side, there is a small, albeit growing group that has employed natural language processing and machine learning to actually retrace where commentary originates to be able to demonstrate the biased source. And on the flip side, and I would place money on the fact that I'm not the first to tell you this, platforms like Facebook have made it significantly worse through allowing and often encouraging misinformation to spread. How does it spread so easily? It spreads through successful deployment of the next three of our tactics. Stories online that often and might I add unfortunately get referenced in real world conversations employ logical fallacies and cherry picking of facts and when all else fails, a good conspiracy theory never fails to excite. Now I promise to stick to the structure of the denial and delay arguments today so I'll avoid listing all the common logical fallacies and where cherry picking occurs. But I will link the 2018 collaboration paper between the United States and Australia titled Deconstructing Climate Misinformation to Identify Reasoning Errors on the website southof2degrees.org if you are interested in reading about the 42 most common ones. Now, the final tactic that is employed is that of impossible expectations, which is something I'll dive into further in a minute. But first, I want to wrap up this bit on misinformation. You see, climate disinformation campaigns have been so successful that we have reached a point where just demonstrating scientific consensus isn't enough. In fact, beyond referring to the current time as the post-truth era, the first paper I originally cited states quite emphatically, quote, Blunt affirmation of the scientific consensus on climate change is not alone sufficient to change the minds of skeptical publics, end quote. So how do we address it then, you ask? Well, let's continue with our analysis to better understand. You see, the interesting part is that while flat-out climate deniers was a significant group in the 80s and grew exponentially in the 90s, it has made an interesting transition. With the scientific consensus and personal experience becoming harder and harder to explain away, that group has boarded a virtual train, if you will, that stops at six stations, each with their own argument against anthropogenic climate change. This transition, or train, is what renowned climatologist Michael Mann refers to as denial retreat, and it goes a little something like this. The first argument is flatly, CO2 isn't increasing. This is almost impossible to hold anymore. As such, most deniers have given up this position, although ironically, they will most likely deny they were ever here in the first place. It at least the ones I regularly talk with, refuse to admit it. And they have boarded our little train for one of the next stops. The second position in denial retreat is, even if CO2 is increasing, the increase has no impact on the climate as there is no evidence of warming. This also is an ever-increasingly difficult spot to hold. 
Yes, I spoke to a gentleman just the other day that was convinced the planet was cooling, but that is far from the norm. Where most folks to date seem to have exited our climate denial retreat train is the third stop, which states, even if there is warming, it is due to natural causes. This is at the heart of the denial group right now, and I can't even begin to tell you how often we get hit with this at south of two degrees. The interesting part is deniers often retreat from this position to the fourth when engaged in individual conversations, but return to this spot after the conversation is over, which, you know, come to think of it, would be an interesting follow-up to the body of research out there if someone wanted to tackle it. Anyway, I digress. The fourth stop of denial retreat, which isn't far from the third and makes an easy step for deniers to take when confronted with hard science, is even if the warming cannot be explained by natural causes, the human impact is so small and the impact of continued greenhouse gas emissions will be minor. Now, some deniers will go so far as to claim it's arrogant to believe that we are so powerful that humans could affect the Earth's climate. Yet it wasn't that long ago that nature was considered far too infinite for mankind to have an impact. Yet now we have sequoia trees that need protection from logging and entire animal species lost to the pages of history. The fifth stop is an up-and-coming one that is gaining in popularity, although my guess is its rise in popularity derives from the former positions becoming harder and harder to logically hold. It is, even if the current and future projected human effects on Earth's climate are not negligible, the changes are generally going to be good for us. This again has the weight of science against it, but if putting facts in front of folks was all it took, we'd be in a much different spot. Finally, the sixth station of Michael Mann's denial retreat isn't the end of the line. While it states whether or not the changes are good for us, humans are very adept at adapting to changes. Besides, it's too late to do anything about it, and or technological fix is bound to come around the corner when we need it. It is actually a stepping off point from the climate denier train to that of the climate delayer, which is where we are headed in the second part of today's show. The structure of the current climate delayer arguments are actually more complex and nuanced than that of the flat-out denier, but this is exactly why I want to dive into the structure, as truly being able to identify and counter this type of climate discourse is going to be the crux of our climate conversations in society over the next decade. First, as this is a new-ish area, I want to help define a climate delayer for you. A climate delayer is a person who, when engaged in discussions on what action should be taken, by whom, and how quickly, will argue for either minimal action or for action to be first taken by others. They raise doubts as if to mitigation is even possible and focus on the negative societal effects of policies addressing anthropogenic climate change. And while I want my doubters to compare their own arguments against this, I also want to issue a word of warning to my advocates and activists. It is far too easy for us to get caught up in fighting for our own personal preference and mitigation pathways and lose sight of the ultimate goal of limiting anthropogenic warming. We'll touch on this more shortly, but for now, keep an open mind as even as an activist, you can easily fall into the trap of becoming a climate delayer. With that, there are 12 facets or categories under which climate delayer arguments fall and an absolutely incredible paper titled Discourses of Climate Delay published 8th of June 
June 2020 will be our guide for the rest of our conversation today. The paper breaks the 12 facets into four overarching categories or structured arguments. They are 1. Redirecting responsibility. 2. Non-transformative solutions. 3. Emphasize the downsides. And 4. Surrender. To break them down, we'll start in reverse order as we all know what surrender is. It's the waving our little white flag and accepting defeat. Now, the surrendered structured argument focuses on two facets. Either A. Change is impossible, analogous with man's sixth stage of denialism, or B. Flat-out doomism. The change is impossible tactic claims that the issue is too big and that there is no way we could organize such a socioeconomic transformation. I like to think of it like my son when he falls on the floor after being asked to clean his room and claims that it's so dirty it'll take him forever. And if I had audio, I'd play it for you. But I know every one of you that is a parent out there knows exactly what I'm talking about. And so he lies there, not realizing that if he put in a concerted effort, he'd be done in short order and his life would be exponentially better. Change is impossible is pretty much the adult reaction to being told, go clean your planet. Doomism, on the other hand, is just the resignation of all hope. Mitigation is futile, and you might as well just utter Lasciate ogni speranza voi contrate and shuffle off to Dante's fourth circle. Oh, and if you couldn't place that accent, it's called Oklahoma Italian. Okay, back on track. Thankfully, the surrendered structured argument is not a common one, so let's look at emphasizing the downsides. There are three subcategories here to this argument, and they are appeal to social justice, appeal to well-being, and policy perfectionism. This is the area climate activists need to tread carefully on. While it is absolutely important to roll social justice into the way we decide to tackle anthropogenic climate change, which we know disproportionately affects the less advantaged in society, it is an easily driven wedge when we let policy discussions become discourses on delay that can turn activists against each other, producing the desired effect of inaction. Further, the extreme version of the social justice facet is the appeal to well-being. It is currently being used to position the fossil fuel industry as the best poverty reduction path we have ever pursued. And I'm, I'm serious here, don't laugh. This is evident from a direct quote from Bjorn Lomberg, president of the Copenhagen Consensus Center, who said, quote, abandoning fossil fuels as quickly as possible, as many environmental activists demand, would slow the growth that has lifted billions of people out of poverty, end quote. Okay, think about that for a second. Are you starting to already be able to break apart that comment as a logical fallacy coupled with obvious cherry-picked data? Likely you are, and that's exactly what we want to accomplish today. Last of the emphasizing the downsides is the push for policy perfection. We see this time and again, and as we search for the silver bullet that solves it all in one go, unfortunately... That's not how life works, and we can't become trapped looking for it while the planet continues to warm. Steps in the right direction, however small, are still steps in the right direction. The structured arguments of non-transformative solutions is the largest as it has four subcategories, which are technological optimism, fossil fuel solutionism, all talk and little action, and what the authors call no sticks, just carrots. And before I end up with some Elmer Fudd, Bugs Bunny joke in my inbox, let's tackle the no sticks, just carrots argument. The authors suggest that carrots, or voluntary policies, are often pushed instead of sticks, or restrictive policies. This is a way of making progress self-defeating. 
I mean, if all we needed was to appeal to the betterment of mankind, we sure wouldn't be in this mess. No sticks, just carrots is just a step beyond the all talk and little action facet where we see far too many global politicians. They stand up proudly and beat their chest claiming that their country is leading the world in the fight, but only after creating such a narrow definition of success on a singular metric that the actions hardly move the needle. Now, fossil fuel solutionism might seem laughable at first. Okay, okay, well it just is, but it's hidden amongst the thousands of messages we are bombarded with every day. We see this in clean coal commercials, and don't get me started on those, and the tens of millions of dollars spent on advertisements trying to demonstrate that those in the fossil fuel industry are part of the solution. I'll give you a second to take in the irony here. Finally, we have technological optimism. Isn't that a good thing, you ask? Well, yes and no. Let me explain. Believing in technological advancements and putting resources behind them is a wonderful thing. But the reason it fits in here with the deconstruction of Climate Delaire's arguments is because it has started to become an excuse as to why we shouldn't act now. I mean, if Beck's and enhanced weathering are as good as they claim, why not just sit back and wait until they're at scale? See where I'm going? Good, because while we do need to pursue these pathways, we can't do so at the expense of all others. Human ingenuity may very well be infinite. However, the resources of this planet are not, and we shouldn't act as if they are. Finally, the redirect responsibility argument is likely the most common you encounter in your daily lives. The three facets of it are whataboutism, individualism, and yes, here it is again, the free rider problem. Whataboutism is the one that drives me the craziest as it's a surefire way to derail any conversation. Even amongst advocates, it can be present. Take, for instance, say, my listeners in Nepal. Shout out to all of you out there that listen. Anyway, in 2017, Nepal's share of global emissions was 0.08%. Meanwhile, China was responsible for 27.51%, and the U.S. in the number two slot with 14.75%. The whataboutism argument is essentially if my listeners in Nepal were debating what they could do, and someone said, what the hell do we have to do anything for? We're a drop in the bucket compared to the U.S. Let them do something. Are they way off base? No, the U.S. does produce a significant amount of the world's anthropogenic greenhouse gases, but they weren't part of the original conversation of what can Nepal do. It's an easy trap to fall into, so as I said at the beginning, get comfortable labeling that and you'll be better prepared to keep the conversation focused on real solutions. Individualism is another popular delayer tactic that is somewhat tied back to our sticks and carrots facet as it argues for individuals to do more while leaving powerful actors and organizations out of the conversation. Sure, changing consumption habits is something we need to do, but that shouldn't derail the actions focused around production. This can be either implicit or explicit, but either way should be addressed for what it is. Our paper eloquently states, quote, a more productive discourse of responsibility would focus attention on the collective potential of individual action to stimulate normative shifts and build pressure towards regulation. It would also recognize that regulations and structural shifts are complementary to supporting individual behavior change, end quote. 
Finally, we wrap up today with the free rider problem that has come up not just today or last week, but in all aspects, economic, social determinants, and arguments of delayers of what truly stands in our way. I know we're running long today, so if you missed my explanation of the free rider problem from last week and don't have time to listen to that whole show, just skip to the 13-minute, 8-second mark and listen for about a minute and 20 seconds. Now, you may have a grasp on why Nobel laureates spend time focused in on this singular issue. As unfortunate as it is, our paper today puts it plainly, quote, unless all individuals, industries, or countries undertake emissions reductions, some will stand to benefit from the actions of others, end quote. And in summation on understanding the structural arguments of delayers, the types of skeptics and the deniers retreat, I want you to remember this. Those that stand in our way are not our enemy. I give you the tools to dismantle their arguments, not to beat them or to prove in glaring detail the fallacies of their argument. I do so so that we can address their underlying and systemic fear of the future and collaborate with them by showing them it is both desirable as well as possible to mitigate anthropogenic climate change. So that's a nice kumbaya, Brian, but seriously, where do we go from here? Well, I know I've hit you with a ton of information over the last several weeks, and it may take a while for it to sink in. But instead of a fancy ending, I think I'll simply leave you with a quote from chapter 64 of one of my favorite books. Quote, a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. Lao Tzu, the Tao Te Ching. So go take that first step, however small, no matter what it is, and just keep going. Do that and we'll finally be able to move beyond what stands in our way. And that wraps up today's show as well as the third and final part of our series, What Stands in Our Way. I hope you got as much out of it as the love and effort we put into the research, production, and publishing of it for you. Also, a huge shout out to the amazing scientists, individuals, and everyone who did research that allowed us to present this information to you. Be sure to continue the journey with us next week. And aside from checking out all the latest information on the website, blog, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram, do this for me. Tell one other person about this show in the next week. Have at least one conversation about climate change with someone else. And above all, let's keep it south.